Kelsey. Take your Bibles, if you would, and join me in Psalm 46. For our word, we've been walking through the Psalms this summer. Actually, about to wind it up in the next few weeks, and before we jump into the book of Ephesians. So, I'm glad you're here with us, and invite you to turn with us as well. So the psalm we're studying, this is Psalm 46, the psalm we're studying this morning is saturated with Jesus. Jesus is the personification, really, of this psalm. And I have been looking forward all week, and I can't wait to get into the text this morning so you can discover that for yourself. To put the theme in a nutshell, the theme of Psalm 46 is, is simply this, rightly placed confidence in God in spite of insurmountable troubles. For the extreme of global collapse, which we'll see in verses 2 and 3, to the worst of political upheavals, which is right there beginning with uh, verse 5 and 6, um, to God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. And, and therein lies the theme of this great chapter. Therefore, believers who um, trust in him need not be terrified and paralyzed by fear as if God were somehow absent, right? For centuries, this psalm, as you probably know, has it's inspired many Christians in times of physical trouble, in times of danger, uh, in times when it seems like the entirety of their lives were spinning out of control. Martin Luther is a notable one of those believers from our past, uh, just to pick one out of there, uh, who leaned heavily into this psalm. You know, after being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he lived most of his life with the constant threat of danger because of the gospel. And it was the words of Psalm 46, this very chapter, that, that he would strengthen his heart in when times got to be their worst. In fact, he would, he would call upon friends and he would say, Come on, friends, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let our enemies do their worst. So it's a little wonder why the opening line of his famous hymn, which he wrote, by the way, on the way to the Diet of Worms, um, is a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And in fact, we plan on singing that song as a hymn of response uh, to our message and sermon this morning. But for now, set your eyes upon Psalm chapter 46. I want to read this chapter in its entirety. Uh, and then begin to talk about it. Psalm 46, to include the title there, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, Alamoth, forgive me, a song. This is the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Now to begin this morning, I've debated how I want to kind of jump into this, but I've decided that to begin this morning, I want to share a synopsis of the Old Testament account that that many commentators believe serve as the basis for this psalm. I say many commentators believe because the psalm itself does not identify the context. Some of them do, this one does not. But the content of this psalm seems to match perfectly with the miraculous rescue of Hezekiah's people when they were under great siege by the army of Assyria under the leadership of Sennacherib. Maybe you're familiar with that story. It's a pretty familiar story in the Old Testament. It happened around the date of 701 B.C. Samaria, capital of the upper kingdom, has already fallen to Sennacherib. And and people, frankly, were subject to his harsh treatment. They were separated and scattered at his whim and his will. And I can even envision, can't say this for certain, but I can envision that refugees who might have escaped his hand from there traveled down to the gates of Jerusalem, spreading the news and looking for refuge and shelter inside the strong walls of the fortress that was the city of the Lord in Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits atop a mountain, and maybe unfortunately for it, its water source was situated and located outside the city walls. So think about this, without a water source inside a city, a siege, which which is when an enemy army would have surrounded the area and basically just waited them out, right? Until they're making attacks into the place, but they're also just waiting on surrender and or death, whichever might come first. But without a water source inside a city, a siege would have taken no time at all. So with no natural river running through Jerusalem, King Hezekiah is credited with the really a, an engineering marvel whereby they, they drilled straight down from within the city inside the walls of Jerusalem and from the water source below, they drilled and, and tunneled basically right over until those two things met. They didn't meet perfectly. I've never been to uh, Israel, more obviously Jerusalem, the capital there, but I understand there's some zigzags there that you have to go through when you're traveling through what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, uh, but when you see the marvel that takes place, that allowed water to go from the water source over here and then into the city where it pooled at the Pool of Siloam. And you may remember that Pool of Siloam from John chapter 9 because it's there that Jesus healed the blind man. So those 
two paths met, and it was the engineering marvel of Hezekiah that made that happen. And he covered up the water source so that when enemies would come, they had nothing that they would block off from the people. It's incredible. This man-made, so man-channeled river, no doubt, right, would have offered life-giving water for such a time as the one Jerusalem found, himself in, found herself in there in 701 when they were greatly and mightily under siege. However, they would not be able to last forever, right? And looking out over the city walls, if you lived inside there and, and you glance out at the enemy army, this is no small army, there are 185,000 soldiers. And they're not only being intimidated by the sight of that, but they're crumbling under the weight of the taunts and the um, striking of fear from what these soldiers and leadership of the soldiers are saying. So it's striking fear into everyone. And then finally, it kind of reaches this fever pitch when, when a letter is read and words are spoken from the leadership's um, ambassadors who is basically bringing all these taunting to a high level. And it is at that point that upon hearing what was said to the people that Hezekiah rips and tears his clothes, covers himself with sackcloth, and goes into the temple. And he sent his closest advisors to the prophet, a prophet you're familiar with, prophet Isaiah, who responds to Hezekiah's prayer that was lifted up to God, having heard from God, gives this message to Hezekiah. So found in 2 Kings chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, but that's where I'm reading from, verses 5 through 7. Here's the response through the lips of Isaiah from God. Here's what he says. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Hear this, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, this word from these ambassadors who taunting them from below, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me, God says. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. It's worth your time to turn over in your study this week or sometime to Isaiah chapter 37. Because in Isaiah chapter 37, you get the, really the commentary and the full breadth of this story that Isaiah reads, and I'm going to share just a few verses from that. So this is Isaiah 37, starting at about 33. So this is kind of the rest of the story, right? In Isaiah 37, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. And then listen to what God says through Isaiah. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord, one angel, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, stick that in your head, when the people arose early in the morning, 
behold, these were all dead bodies. That's a, an abbreviated way of saying. Can you imagine? You wake up and you look out over the wall at the people who have been scaring you to death about them coming in and you look out and they're there, but, but they're dead. Wow. Isaiah puts it pretty bluntly here. These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and he returned home. Remember what had been prophesied? The way he got here is the way he'll return. And he lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Erishaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So all that to say, in an abbreviated form, this took place in 701. 185,000 soldiers of king of Assyria, dead by the hands of the hand of the Lord. That happened through the night. The people of Jerusalem woke up in the morning and saw their deliverance. And Sennacherib went his way back to Nineveh until he met his end by the hands of his sons. Now, in light of that context and background, I want us to walk through this psalm, which is divided into three stanzas, each ending with the word selah. And to help us organize our thoughts around this text, I'm, I'm just offering three very simple handles or points for the sermon. Three words. First was this, refuge. The second is river. The third is rest. Refuge, river, rest. It's important that we remember the context because it's going to inform why these people at the end of that would have looked back and sung this psalm, sung this psalm when they needed to bolster their hearts and steal their hearts in renewed confidence and trust in their ever-present helping God. Verses 1 through 3, refuge. If you'll notice here, we begin with this awesome confession of faith. Verse 1 simply says, and it, it contains the confession of faith, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Notice it doesn't begin with the walls. It doesn't begin with the great king who had a great idea of drilling down these tunnels and over this. It doesn't involve anything that's of the hands of man. And it begins with the word God. God is our refuge. No doubt that those who lived outside of the fortified walls of Jerusalem, when they heard the rumblings that Assyria was coming, I, I can only imagine that they fled for the safety of the city gates in thick walls. I mean, kind of think back, if you will, to um, Tolkien's movie, right? And you had the great mighty fortress, this fictional fortress of Helm's Deep, and the thick walls and solid gates which would have provided a certain security. But this confession of faith of Psalm um, uh, 46 is about God. It's not about a man-made wall. It's a God himself that the psalmist praises as being the refuge, a bulwark, never failing. God's our refuge. Second thing I want us to see right in this first sentence is confession is he is our strength. Years before the reign of Hezekiah, David 
had also been delivered from his enemies. Even before he became king, he's delivered from the hands of Saul. And in light of that, he praised God with these words which come from Psalm 18, another beautiful confession of faith that would be helpful for you to rest in as you are finding yourself navigating through troubled waters, right? Listen to these words from Psalm 18. I love you, Lord, he says. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. This confession of faith, God is our refuge, God is our strength, and God is our help. Notice that the psalmist does not just say that God is our help, but that he is a very present help in trouble. We can't travel beyond his presence, nor can we be so deeply troubled or so deep of trouble that we're beyond his very present help. And notice what they add. Therefore, so confession of faith, and then he begins this confidence to trust. Therefore, we will not fear. This confession of faith fueled the psalmist's commitment, his, his confidence to trust God, and it can fuel yours. It can fuel ours. I mean, just rehearsing the confession of faith in our own hearts and having them readily on our lips gives us this sense of peace and calm, for they tell us that God is near and that He is our refuge and our strength. Wednesday night I shared about a phone conversation I received from a friend whose life is... There are evidences of what feels like it's kind of unraveling. And I... I said, hey, bro, um, I cannot help but think of just a psalm that I've been spending a lot of time in this week as it relates to what you're sharing about your life and what's going on. And he says, give it to me. <laughs> and I quoted this. I quoted the parts of this psalm that I quoted to you, not the whole. But when we have this confession hidden in our hearts because it's... It's reflecting of what we know to be true about God. It fuels our ability to stand in the midst of whatever it is we're walking through. It gives us confidence to trust. Notice he says, Therefore, we will not fear. This doesn't mean that the godly are exempt from fear. We've already seen from the words of Psalm 56 when we studied that this past this summer where David said, when I am afraid, I will trust in you in God whose word I praise. So we, we know that there's a healthy aspect of fear. but I mean, fear is natural and it can be good if it presses you and encourages you and fuels you to trust God. But the fear spoken of here is dismay, right? Therefore, we will not be dismayed. This statement of fear is not calling us to be insensible. It's not calling us to, to uh, go through life whistling the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. But it's reminding us to be free from hopelessness as believers. As we, as we anchor down into the promises of God, 
confident that faith in God is rightly placed. There's no scenario too extreme. And now you're cataloging through your personal scenario, right? But there's no scenario too extreme for confidence in God's help to be unwarranted. To this end, look with me at the rest of verses 2 and 3 where the psalmist paints the most catastrophic picture imaginable so you and I will not be tempted to think that what we're going through is beyond his reach. With each stroke of this paintbrush that he paints in verses 2 and 3, he uses the word though four different times in verses 2 and 3, and it's important that you catch this repeated word. It would not hurt for you to circle it in the text of your Bible there. Check out how he uses it. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he says this, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Shannon, our building, Lord willing, a house on a piece of property here in Ringgold so we can get closer to life here in Catoosa County. And among the other rubble that was on this property was a big cylinder, basically a, a, a part of what looks like a forklift, just in the middle of the wood there. And it weighs approximately 2,000 pounds. And the prospect of me moving that with my bare hands in, or arms, intimidating though I may look, <laughs> that wasn't funny, is about, the likelihood of me doing that alone is about the same likelihood of Lookout Mountain jumping from its base into the Tennessee River. The psalmist point. Though the world gives way, still we will not fear. The psalm encourages those who sing its lyrics, its God-affirming words, to say, even if the worst comes about, I will trust God and his sovereign hand. It really moves us from the what ifs to the even if. And when we live in the even if, trusting God's hand as our shield, our fortress, our very present help, our trust is well suited. Now many Christians throughout life, I mean throughout history, I would say, testify to the fortress that God has been when tragedy has stuck or struck. As and you think of just an example of Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth's first husband, Jim Elliot, was killed by the Oka Indians while they were living in Ecuador among a people to whom they were witnessing the gospel. Her second husband, Addison Leach, died a slow and difficult death with cancer. Speaking of both of those tra tragedies in terms of Psalm 46, she writes these words, and see if you can relate a bit. Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is receding. In such a time, it is a profound comfort 
to know that although all things seem shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. This psalmist for the believer aligns our trust in God so that we can sing in spite of being shaken. Whatever you might be facing this morning or walking through or find yourself walking through in the morning, I'm sorry, tomorrow morning, the phone call rings and it's the doctor with a report. The boss calls and it's the bad news of layoffs at work. You name the scenario. Whatever you might be facing today, tomorrow, or whenever it happens, can I invite you to join the psalmist in affirming that even if, fill in the blank, even if, I will not fear. Why? For God is my refuge and my strength, and He is a very present help in times of trouble. Now the psalmist goes on to elaborate. He doesn't just leave it with a confession of faith in this those statements, these series of those statements. He goes on to elaborate on our very present help in verse 4 with a beautiful picture, which brings us to word number 2, river. We've looked at refuge. Now let's look at river found in verse, beginning at verse 4. We'll go through verse 7. I won't read it all at once. Let me just begin with the words of verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Notice what he says about the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. The reason I told you about Hezekiah's tunnel and the topography of Jerusalem was not to give us a geography lesson, but just to reiterate that there is no river which is in Jerusalem, the city of God. So this, mu- this verse must be pointing forward to that for which the city of God, in our text, serves as a type. What do I mean? It's pointing to the bride of Christ, the church. I can only imagine that the psalmist is, is writing here the historical context to comfort those who had experienced that, but by God's grace, through His Spirit, He's pointing us on this side of the cross to something more, which is what happens oftentimes in the Scripture. Think with me in the life of Jesus for a moment. Just go fast forward in your knowledge through history here. In John chapter 7, Jesus attended the Festival of Booths. Sometimes you'll hear this festival called the Festival of Tabernacles. And during this festival, the people were to live for one entire week in booths made of branches of palm trees so that that could serve as a reminder of the Lord's care for His people as they were traveling through and making their wanderings through the desert after their deliverance from Egypt. During the seven-day observance, the priest would present libations of water, offerings of water, after the morning offering. And while he's doing this sprinkling of water and making this libation of water, the choir is singing words that we find in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And these words are this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This water was most significant back in the day of the Exodus after they've been delivered from Egypt and making their wanderings through um, the desert. Because in the desert... 
when the people of Israel were faced with nearly thirsting to death, what does God do? God provides water from the rock. And they've celebrated this with an annual festival, um, even into the life and times of Jesus. In John chapter 7, however, when Jesus is at this festival, the significance of life-giving water sources soars to new heights because on the eighth day, the last day, the great day of the feast, the day that does not contain priests making libations of water, but the great day of the feast, the eighth day when people would celebrate what they've been experiencing all week, this happens. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out with these words, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, he says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think back to the Psalms. The streams of spiritual blessing flowing from God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit make glad the city of God continually. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God that we live on this side of history where God has sent His Son, Jesus, who took on flesh and He dwelt among us as Emmanuel. He is God with us. We who were redeemed in Jesus, we are never alone. Jesus said, and, and promised with this saying in Matthew chapter 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you're here this morning and have never placed your faith in Jesus, you've never placed your faith in Christ, please open your heart to Him. Repent of your sins. Receive forgiveness from God and be united with Christ. Let's get back to our psalm because it provides us with more reasons to confidently hope in God in the midst of trouble. Let's start with verse 5. So back to chapter 46, verse 5, where the psalmist writes, God is in the midst of her, the city of God. Right? This is Psalm 46. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And he talks about this political unrest, right? The nations rage. You, you don't have to tell the people inside the city that nations are raging. Heavens, you don't have to tell us that nations are raging. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He, God, utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now as I noted at the beginning of our service, when morning dawned in that day in Jerusalem, the day after Isaiah shared what God was going to do, the people looked out and saw 185 Assyrian soldiers dead. The children of Israel were correct to affirm the Lord of hosts was indeed, he had, had indeed been with them 
And the God of Jacob was their fortress. But you and I today, all the more, the church can affirm the same. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Refuge, river, finally and quickly, rest. Look at verses 8 through 11. And as a believer in the resurrected, very present Christ, you, friends, are given a glorious invitation. No matter your age. Verses 8 through 11 of this psalm offer that invitation in two parts. And although much could be said or added, and I may do that at another time, I'll let the text speak for itself this morning. The first is this invitation. Come and see. Or as the text says, come, behold. Come behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. That means a lot to us. But it would certainly mean a ton as the people who witnessed the great desolations of the Lord were reminding their children of the great mighty hand of God who is their refuge and their strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Come, behold the works of the Lord. When we look back at this, we look to Jesus on the cross who is the ultimate expression of the work of the Lord who sacrificed and offered himself for the sin of man so that all who would trust in him would have life. He did not come to be served. But he came to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Come and see. Second invitation is this. And maybe it's the invitation for you just specifically this morning. But that's this invitation. Be still and know. <laughs> still, in the brief hindsight moment of having seen the deliverance of God in such dramatic fashion, these words would have been ringing in their songs. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The second time that sentence is repeated in this chapter. I want to close by offering one more picture of gospel-rich hope for those of you who are in Christ. Hear what I said. Gospel-rich hope for those of us who are in Christ. The invitation has been cast for those who aren't. Receive Jesus. Repent of your sins. Receive forgiveness of God through Jesus by faith. But for those of you who are in Christ, hear this gospel-rich hope from this passage. Would you look back at verse 5 with me just for a second? Back in verse 5, the psalmist wrote this. God is in the midst of her. And then it says, She shall not be moved. As it relates to Jerusalem, as it relates to the city of God physically there, 
Although God provided the victory against the Assyrians in 701, he would allow Jerusalem to fall to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. You don't need to have history dates locked up in your head, but I say that for this reason. Heaven and earth will pass away. and Kingdoms of this world will totter. There's only one city that will last forever. There's only one kingdom that will endure. And that is the city that will come down. New Jerusalem. In that city, the redeemed will see the face of Christ. And night will be no more. But until that day, we will join countless others throughout history who by God's grace have trusted God to be their refuge and their strength, a very present help in trouble. For those who are in Christ, we will trust God who is for us a mighty fortress. Let's pray together. And then we'll sing that hymn together. Heavenly Father, we celebrate your Son, Jesus. We exalt Him high. We thank you, God, that we can trust and rely on you as our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God, thank you for Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Or would you work this confession of faith into our hearts? And would you allow it to flesh itself into us and out of us as we seek to grow in faith and trust you more and more in the midst of what this world brings? Now be honored as together we sing the 46th anticipating that indeed the world may give us her worst. In Jesus' name, amen.